All right, when you're a kid, or actually when you're a kid or when you're an adult, it doesn't matter. Normally when you get something new, it's pretty exciting, right? And this morning, I'm excited because I get to kickstart our latest teaching series, which conveniently is called New. Now, it's, it's not just called New because it's new today and we're starting it today, but it's also called New. I know there's been some confusion. It's called New because we're going to explore the newness that Jesus brings to our lives. And if you know anything about Jesus, you'll know that he was a very pivotal person in history. So you may be familiar with Time magazine. Each year, Time magazine looks at all the headlines and they look at people who have been most influential and they, and they make a decision on the person of the year. At the end of the 20th century, Time magazine looked at all the influences, influential people, and they made a decision on who was the person of the century, of the 20th century. But Time magazine has also made a call on the person, not just of the year, not just of the century, but of history. And they, have, they, they argue that Jesus Christ is the person of history, the most influential, the most famous person that has ever walked this earth. And when you think about it, there are more songs that are sung to him, there is more artwork done of him, there is more books written about him than anyone that has ever lived. In fact, James Francis put it like this, he said, all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of mankind on this earth as much as Jesus Christ. And there's a number of reasons why Jesus is so influential. He was a very good ethical and moral teacher. He was also a miracle, uh, miraculous healer, a miracle worker. He challenged the status quo. He championed the oppressed and the overlooked. But ultimately... Jesus was more than just a moral teacher or a miracle worker or a social revolutionary. For the last 2,000 years, his followers have claimed that he was the Son of God, that in the person of Jesus, divine became human. In fact, one of his followers put it like this, the Word became flesh. Now, I don't know what you think about that claim. Maybe you agree Maybe you disagree, but over the next 10 weeks we're going to see if Jesus stacks up. We're going to look at what he said and what he did. We're going to look at his conversations. We're going to look at his teachings. And we're going to, we're going to literally journey with Jesus. But we're also going to drill down and to look at what I think a lot of people miss when they consider the life of Jesus. Because when you, when you read the biographers of Jesus, they make it very clear that not only was he the Son of God, but that Jesus brought something new to the world. Jesus didn't just come to preach ancient truths. He didn't just come to perpetuate an existing religion, to kind of you know, um, preserve Judaism 2.0. He didn't come to fill in the Bible so that we'd have an Old Testament and a New Testament. Jesus came to bring something new to the world, but he also came to do something new for the world. So how many of you have ever been to um, like a big concert or maybe a big sort of sports event or something? Hands up, anybody? Okay, so you would know that, that every headliner has to have 
an opening act, some, someone or something that kind of warms up the crowd. So if you go to a big concert, you pay your money, you get your ticket, and then you have normally two, sometimes three bands before the big band kind of comes on stage. Or if you go to a big rugby game, the All Blacks or something, there's often a curtain raiser before the big proper match. So in the first century, this may come as a surprise to you, but in the first century, Jesus had a warm-up act. Now, I don't know, it might have gone like this, you know, from the Judean wilderness, from the banks of the Jordan River, and the crowd's starting to like build up a little bit, draped in camel skins with, with locust breath, go wild for, wow, John the Baptist. I don't, know if it, I don't know if it quite worked like that, but certainly something along those lines, because John the Baptist is, is one of the most fascinating figures in ancient history. Now, the reason he's called John the Baptist is not because he was not John the Anglican or John the Presbyterian or John the Brethren, okay? As the warm-up act to Jesus, John the Baptist did something new with baptism. So in, in Jewish culture at the time, baptism was part of the process of becoming Jewish. In the first century, if you wanted to convert to Judaism then there were certain rituals that you had to perform, certain practices which you had to fulfil, certain customs that you had to go through. And baptism was one of those. It was a ceremonial washing which involved you immersing yourself either in in a bath or, or in a pool. And it was symbolic. Baptism was symbolic. It represented the end of your old non-Jewish life and the beginning, the coming alive to your new Jewish way of living. That was what it represented. But the interesting thing was that Jewish baptism was pretty much DIY. So you were alone normally when you were baptised in the Judaism practice or, or you may have done it under supervision of a rabbi but that rabbi would be standing on the edge of the, of the pool watching you. No one else was in the pool with you at the same time. But John the Baptist, he does something new. As far as we can tell from the historical accounts, John the Baptist was in the water alongside people, physically baptising them. He was encouraging them, he was helping them turn to God and that's why he got the nickname John the Baptist. So we're going to pick up his story. Uh, There's there's four biographers who write about Jesus and, and all of them introduce John the Baptist as well. We're going to read from uh, Matthew chapter 3 is the biographer that we're going to read. I've got it up here on the screen for you. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, Repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, Here's a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptised them in the Jordan River. Now the great thing about this is the first three words in those days, if you wanted to kind of compare this, you could look at Luke chapter 3, and you'll see that in Luke chapter 3, Luke gives a bit of a breakdown of political leaders at the time. He talks about the Roman emperor and the various governors of the provinces and, and all those sorts of people. Now, 
from a historical point of view, that's, that's a gold mine. This is not a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is not even once upon a time. There is legitimacy to this. It's almost as if these, these biographers, these authors are saying, hey, fact check this. John the Baptist, he was a real person. He lived at a real point in history. And I think that validity is, is important. It confirms the details of the story. So look there in verse 5. Uh, people from Jerusalem, Judea and all the Jordan Valley came out to see and hear John the Baptist. Now here's a couple of important geographical things you need to know. Jerusalem to the Jordan Valley is a distance of around about 30 kilometres. So Alexandra to Cromwell approximately, okay? That's the distance. And remember there were no cars, there were no motorbikes. The fastest way you could get there was by donkey, but most people ended up just walking. And, and it was a, a pretty difficult journey. So to go from Jerusalem to the Jordan Valley, you'd have to get up before sunrise. It would be a full day trip through some very steep, some very rugged terrain. And then you would arrive probably after sunset. You would have to set up you know, camp or whatever after a very tiring and taxing journey. And then you would head out to the, to the river in the morning. That was, that was the effort that people had to go through to get to this. But it seems like a lot of people were going. There's not just a handful of people going and listening to this crazy man preaching in the wilderness. According to this, there's actually many people, potentially thousands of people. The reason I say that is that Judea at the time was a very large region. In fact, Jerusalem was a city. Scholars estimate that the population of Jerusalem in the first century was round about 100,000 people. It's quite a lot of people. So even if Half of them, even if just you know, a quarter of them are heading out to see John the Baptist, that's thousands of people making this difficult and dangerous trip just to see and to hear John the Baptist. But these people are not just going to see and hear John the Baptist, they're actually responding to his message. In verse 6 you can see they were confessing their sins. This is unheard of. This is revolutionary. And we read this, in the 21st century, and we're like, so what, you know? They were confessing their sins. I do that all the time if I'm a really bad person. <laughs> no, joking. But in the first century, so the Jewish people had a very sophisticated system for confessing their sins. So, so if you lived in the city of Jerusalem, or even if you lived in the surrounding region, if you, were conf- if you wanted to confess your sin, you had to go to the temple and you had to have an animal which you would sacrifice at the temple. Now you could BYO, your own sheep or goat or bull or whatever, or you could buy one at the temple courts. Pretty handy. And then once you had a specific animal for the specific sacrifices, you had to find a priest who would make that sacrifice on your behalf. So you had to have the right person, you had to have the right animal, you had to say the right words, and then eventually you would be forgiven. And that sounds like a lot of hoops to jump through, right? Very similar to a lot of our modern religious systems. But John the Baptist comes along and he totally disturbs the system. He is, he's a nobody in the middle of nowhere and people are confessing their sins to him. It's almost as if he's a walking, talking temple. 
but he has no authority, no education, no status. He's just this wild prophet down by the river preaching and baptising and the crowds are flocking to him. So this was pretty unsettling for the religious leaders. It was like no one was shopping at the temple, they were all shopping down at the river with John the Baptist. And so they decide to head down to the Jordan River and see what the fuss is all about, to see what John the Baptist is actually saying and what he's actually doing. Now, now this is a really big deal for these religious leaders to go because obviously not only it's just you know, a day's travel, but they go with an entourage. It's likely that they would have a big convoy, there'd be donkeys, there'd be mules, there'd be tents, there'd be food, and, and it's big and it's, it's a big convoy and it's entourage because the religious leaders were the guys. They were the guys. They were in charge of the whole religious system and the temple. They were highly respected. They were like the celebrities, the influential people of their day. So when people would take their kids to the temple, they'd be like, oh, look, there's the high priest over there. Oh, look at his flash robes. You know, that's, that's the kind of respect that these religious leaders had. They looked good. They dressed well. They kept the law. And so these religious leaders, they were looked up to for spiritual strength and to support. And it was assumed that if God was going to do anything in the world, these guys, these guys would be the first to know about it. So this group of religious leaders heads down to John the Baptist and it must have been an impressive sight, you know, this convoy winding its way through the hills and, and eventually they get to the banks of the river and just, just picture for a moment the contrast. There's John the Baptist with his wild hair, his scraggly beard, camel skin, smells like he's lived his whole life outdoors and then there's the religious leaders the most sophisticated, the most perfect and proper group of people in the nation. It's just this one guy who's rough as guts and this group of people who are slick and suave. And then look what happens next. But when he, that's John the Baptist, saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptise, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Man, you can imagine that. When he said, you brood of snakes, there must have just been this hush over the crowd. Nobody talks to these guys like that. These guys, they're the holiest group of guys in the nation. They're their full-time job is to be good. And John calls them out. He, he knows what they're there for. He knows that they're there to check him out, to put him in his place. They just simply want to preserve their authority to protect the status quo. But, but that's not what John the Baptist is all about. His mandate, you remember, was to be a voice in the wilderness, to prepare the way for Jesus, to preach to the people to repent of their sins and turn to God because the kingdom of God is about to break in. And essentially, John the Baptist challenges the holiest men in the country to show their true colours, to prove by their actions 
that they have genuinely repented of their sins, that their heart is in the right place. It's not about keeping up appearances. It's not about maintaining a status or a system. God wants their hearts and their minds to be totally committed to him. And you know, this is a huge heads up from John to the crowd, to the religious leaders, and ultimately to us. That something is coming that a lot of religious people are going to be uneasy about that the days of comfortable, the days of compassionless, the days of empty religion are over. And so John really hammers home his point. This is his next line. He said, don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Wow, this is a, this is a crushing critique of these religious leaders. I mean, these guys are, have a sort of smug satisfaction about their Jewish heritage. You know, they are the chosen people of God. But John points out that their heritage, their pedigree, their knowledge, their wealth, their social status, that counts for nothing in God's economy. What truly matters to God is the good fruit that's produced in our lives. And this, is, this must have been a bombshell for his listeners. Uh, John the Baptist is calling out the hypocrisy of the religious elite. These are the people who should know better. And so you'd think this would be the, the perfect time to repent of their pretending, for the religious leaders to just go, you know, you've seen through us. We're sorry and, and confess their sins to God. But instead, the religious leaders sadly miss the opportunity. There's another account where, uh, of, this, of this event that just highlights the frustration that the religious leaders had with the new things that John the Baptist was doing. This is what happens. Then the Pharisees who had been uh, sent asked him, what right do you have to baptise? And look at John's answer. John told them, I baptise with water. But right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognise. Though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandal. Man, he knew how to like stir the pot, didn't he? <laughs> Those religious leaders were so frustrated with his answer that John the Baptist points out their spiritual superiority despite all the stuff that they've got. They cannot recognise the new thing that God is about to do. And so in the end, the convoy leaves. The religious leaders, they pack up, the entourage, the donkeys, and they head back to Jerusalem. And then the next day, something significant happens. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. Now again, just think of the contrast here. The religious leaders with their flashy robes, their fast donkeys, their huge convoy and stuff, and here's Jesus just simply coming towards John. No entourage, no convoy, just simple. Such a simple but significant moment. Perhaps, arguably, one of the greatest moments in history. And this is the moment where God goes public, where Jesus launches 
a new movement which will ultimately change the world. So as Jesus approaches, this is what John the Baptist says. John said, look, not believe, not just imagine, not pretend, not leave your brain at the door. John invites his listeners and he invites us to look. And the crowd turns. And John says this, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now instantly his Jewish listeners would recognise the symbolism. So every morning and every evening of every day, a lamb was sacrificed in the temple back in Jerusalem. And that lamb was to pay for the sins of the Jewish people. Because the penalty for sin demanded that a life was given. And so this just must be blowing the minds of John's listeners. They knew that a price had to be paid for sin. But that was supposed to happen back in the temple. Not out here, in the middle of nowhere, with a bunch of nobodies. It was almost too much for John the Baptist listeners to kind of take, but then John pushes them even further and he smashes their mental boxes and he crushes the categories. Not only is this the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, but takes away the sin of the world. Now this has got to be far more than just a murmur, a ripple through the crowd. I imagine people would be like, hang on a second John, are you saying that God is going to forgive the sin of the whole world? Not just Jewish sin, but the sin of our enemies? The sin of the Romans who are oppressing us? John, you, you've lost the plot, John. Why would God do that? Everything in our entire religious system is designed to keep us separate from the world. We don't eat their food. We don't wear their clothes. We don't enter their houses. Their sons don't marry our daughters. Our daughters don't marry their sons. In the temple there is only a tiny area that the non-Jewish people are allowed to go into. We keep separate from them. In fact, our whole Jewish history has been about a struggle against other nations. There's always been us and them. And God's been for us and he's been against them. So when you say, God has sent the Lamb, uh, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Are you saying, John, that God is actually for other people? Are you saying that God has a, a new plan to include and involve others, non-Jewish people as well? Are you saying that anyone, a Jew and a non-Jew, could confess their sin and be forgiven? John the Baptist is setting the stage for Jesus, and that same day, Jesus asks John to baptize him. And John, John says, "Are you kidding? I've literally just told everybody here that I'm not unworthy, I'm unworthy to tie untie your sandals." And Jesus says, "No, it has to be done, John. God's plan is starting. I want everyone here to know that I am starting something new. I am part of the new that you have introduced." And so as we'll see in the coming weeks through his life and his death and his resurrection, Jesus ultimately would bring something new to the world. But also he would do something new 
for the world. Jesus would usher in a new chapter of history, a new season, a new opportunity, a new arrangement between God and people, something that was far more generous and expansive than anything had gone before. And ironically, there was a tension. See, in the first century, the religious leaders wanted to preserve the status quo. They were the guys who should have been the most aware, the most open to God's new movement. But ironically, they were the most resistant. And perhaps you've seen or maybe you've even experienced that tension in your own life. Perhaps you believe that religion is about building boxes and creating categories and who is in and who is out and what God is for and what he's against. But Jesus didn't come to set up a religious system, certainly not in the way that we traditionally think about religion. Jesus came to initiate a movement of men and women and boys and girls, people of all ages and all stages and cultures and backgrounds who were willing to turn to God, to repent of their sin, to live in his grace and to share his truth with others. And I don't know about you, but for the last 2,000 years, that for me has been the most compelling vision of life as it was meant to be. Jesus brings to people purpose and hope and meaning and freedom. He gives us a new way of living. One of his first followers put it like this, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life has gone, a new life has begun. And so that's why I'm excited this morning, not because, uh, because of this new teaching series necessarily, but because of the next 10 weeks, over the next 10 weeks we're going to discover the newness that Jesus brings. We're going to experience his freshness, his fullness, the freedom that he offers. And we're going to be invited to join this new movement that Jesus calls us to be part of. So, friends, just as I finish, if you haven't joined your life to Jesus, if you haven't chosen to confess your sins to him, if you want to live with hope and life and purpose, then I invite you to do that this morning. Perhaps for you becoming a Christian, belonging to Jesus, belonging to Christ, it is the greatest decision that you could ever make. And if you want to talk about that with me further, feel free to chat with myself. There'll be a prayer team in the corner. We'd love to do that. But if you are here and you're already part of the Jesus movement, then can I encourage you to look again, to look again and see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember that Jesus brings something new to the world and he does something new for the world. And so may this week, may you be refreshed by his peace. May you be recharged by his power and may you be renewed by his presence. And may you know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the sin of you and the sin of me too.